Hello and welcome to Chick Flicks. I'm Mackenzie Chapman. And I'm Bridget Hovell. And in this episode of Chick Flicks, we are talking about two movies about inherited magic and curses, Practical Magic and Eve's Bayou. But first, let's catch up. Catch up? <laughs> the condiment? <laughs> I don't know. What are you into? <laughs> okay, so I've been reading this book called Pachinko. It's this epic about an intergenerational epic about this Korean family. It starts with this kind of momentous choice in the 1930s made by this poor um, peasant Korean girl who becomes impregnated by a a rich man who is basically like commuting to work to uh, her town in Korea from Japan, from Osaka. And she does not want to be his mistress. So she accepts a offer of marriage from a poor sickly pastor in town and it basically follows like the repercussions of her choice to rebuff the wealthy father of her son it's really good it reminds me of other kind of like intergenerational uh epic tales like 100 years of solitude or even uh elena ferrante's um neapolitan series like it's that kind of scope of following these characters throughout their lives really really good and it's going to become a a TV show on Apple TV, which I'm super excited about. Um, but da da Oh, perfume genius who is one of my favorite musicians of all time. Definitely one of my favorite working musicians, uh, just released a new album called set my heart on fire immediately. I just think he is so amazing. I love how thoughtfully he constructs visuals around his music too. Pretty much all of his music videos are worth watching. He is also hilarious on Twitter. I just love him so much. I feel like he's a Gemini. He's not. I don't think I've looked it up before. Because <laughs> I felt that connection to him. What is? And you don't know what he is? No, I will look it up. I feel like it's something surprising, though. Like one of those signs you don't think about that much, like Sagittarius. No offense, Sagittarius. Yeah, yeah. I, I get it, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the last thing I've been into, I think you've been into as well. Yes, of course. It's the Avatar. (laughs) The last airbender series is now on Netflix. Here's a question. Is it just these three seasons or? Yeah, there's only three. What the fuck? It's what, what are, wait, that it's released. Yeah. Like they don't, isn't there more than just three seasons? No, that's it. Yeah, there's it's three books. They must cover a lot of ground in and three it's, seasons. It's uh water, earth, uh. and fire. So the first one is water and they're traveling to the water nation. The second is earth where they're like traveling across the earth nation to get to the fire nation and the third is fire nation. Oh, okay. Bridget, you're okay. in for such a wild ride. I haven't watched it since I feel like I watched the first season as a child in two thousand five. Yeah. Um, but now I'm watching it as an adult and it's really enjoyable mm-hmm. and it gets better. Like you, I feel like the series grows with the characters. Like the third one is definitely the best in my opinion. It's the most like mature, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So even if you feel like you're like growing tired of how, like it is like, it's a children's show. Like if you, I feel like if you get are feeling like you're becoming fatigued from that, I would recommend to just keep going and just mm-hmm. even like having it on in the background for sure. Will be really nice. Yeah. Agreed. It's definitely, it has like a juvenile feel sometimes, but the world mm-hmm. building is so rich that it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't 
feel like a kid's show because yeah, you're, yeah. And they also, I was thinking this by watching, also thinking about Eve's Bayou, uh, <laughs> that they they're so young, but they have mm-hmm. to like kind of even peripherally deal with very adult themes of like mm-hmm. war and occupation by a fascist state, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but it's then it's like, yeah. oh, we're kids, like we're goofy yeah. and we're riding magical. Animals. Well, that's like uh, especially like I mean, I've only watched rewatched now like the first few episodes, but mm-hmm. they really like that is like a theme of the show that Aang is sort of he is 12 years old, but the like fate of the world lies on him and he sort of wants to like shirk his responsibilities and just have fun, but eventually he's like, oh shit, like now there's a war and it sucks because it's like he has to deal with that. Yeah, but... that's, that's how I feel about work. You know, I'm only 12. <laughs> I shouldn't have to go to work. <laughs> I'm just a very mature 12-year-old. <laughs> Mackenzie, what else are you into this week? Oh, I feel like I already talked so much. I'm like, my time is over. But... No. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I read Emergency Contact by uh, Mary H.K. Choi. It's a sweet YA novel um, about a girl named Penny Lee who is going to college. She wants to be a writer. Um, and she falls in love with a boy named Sam who wants to be a filmmaker and their relationship is over text pretty much for the majority of the book. Um, and it's very like Sarah Destiny, Meg Cavity, like low, like, and it's all seems very like low stakes to me because they are very good at communicating with each other. They are? Um, yeah, oh, they're very yeah. good at communicating with each other. So I'm like, nothing bad. It, it seems like nothing bad. There would be no, like, miscommunication. So I was very not worried about how it would end up. It was not normal people. Yes, exactly. young people. Yes. And so I, it was very relaxing. And I felt there are a couple things that I was unsatisfied with at the end in terms of, like, the way I felt I felt like open-ended in terms of their like her writing and his filmmaking but I guess maybe they're just young and whatever but I felt like the relationships all came to a nice close at the end uh which was satisfactory satisfactory conclusion um and then the second thing is (laughs) John Woo (laughs) I recently watched all of the Mission Impossible movies during quarantine, which I had never seen, like, the older ones before. And this uh, John Woo directed Mission Impossible 2, and it's, like, widely regarded as the worst one, but I loved it. I, well, Why I definitely... Why is it regarded as the worst one? I think because, well, there de- it definitely has some problems, <laughs> but, like, like, with the love interest... Um, and just the villain is like a weaker character and just the whole like plot is like get the box you know that linda holmes is always like rolling her eyes at where it's like you have to get this box and we don't know why it's like some sort of chemical mystery thing yeah yeah um but i think that john Woo is just so good i love him He, he well i haven't seen anything else but yeah so i just really like john Woo. i feel like he makes even boring things sort of exciting and interesting he's known for his like he's the like slow motion dove guy like where they're do you know what i mean yes um which like 
could be cheesy, but I just sort of love it. I love the cheese. Um, and I watched Gladiator the same week as I watched this, and I couldn't help but wonder if Gladiator would have been better if John Woo had directed it. Ooh. I was like, just like imagine. We imagine should do like a action episode where we watch yeah it. sure your yeah fave, your fave fast and furious and the and best uh, mission impossible whatever that is <laughs> well yeah i don't think this is the best one i like rogue nation but because it introduces rebecca ferguson but um but i think that john woo underrated mission possible 2 underrated just because it is so everything is so considered by him you can tell he just like it's spent a lot of time spicing it up adding flourishes we weren't ready appreciated that (laughs) and then obviously we already talked about avatar so so good check it out everybody maybe we'll do a avatar side podcast where we (laughs) oh my god walk through the different seasons we could keep (laughs) updating our avatar our avatar watch okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) check in (laughs) yeah exactly all right let's jump in okay our first movie we're talking about is practical magic from 1998 Sisters Jillian and Sally Owens were born with magic in their blood, descended from a witch named Maria Owens, who survived a hanging in the 1600s. Jilted by her lover, Maria inadvertently curses her bloodline. Any man loved by an Owens woman, 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 (laughs) will die a premature death. As adults, Jillian and Sally lead different lives. Sally has remained in their hometown with their aunts. She marries a sweet grocer and begins a family while Jillian gallivants around the country in a perpetual spring break. The sisters are reunited when Maria's curse claims the life of Sally's husband, and Jillian attempts to leave her abusive boyfriend, Jimmy. Sally and Jillian's lives are further entwined when they accidentally kill Jimmy and delve deeper into magic than ever before. Ah, this is like, (laughs) I was reading that some people thought this movie wasn't received well critically because Hocus Pocus burnt everybody out on witch stuff. It was the same, wasn't it the same year as The Craft, too? Oh, The year after, and, like, I was surprised that Used by You and Practical Magic are one year apart, too. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Something was in the air. Yeah. I think it was just, like, late 90s. Everyone was sort of... Willow. Yeah, Yeah. Willow was on Buffy. Definitely a new age... Charmed. Charmed. Revival interest in witchcraft and paganism. This movie, I remember watching for the first time with my older sister julia and her friend meadow was like you have to watch this movie this is a movie about like witches and i was they were like the cool older sisters and i was Mm -hmm. younger than them and i can remember watching it for the first time and being like this is an adult movie like the scenes (laughs) with nicole kiffin and her boyfriend i was like they have sex (laughs) in this movie uh you know and and it's so funny to watch it now because it's so uh, like a lot of people have pointed out, there's kind of like weird tonal shifts between very mm-hmm. sweet comedy and more adult themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is like just a sweet, harmless, I would say hard PG movie. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, this is a sexy movie. Mm-hmm. They get drunk and they dance around the kitchen. <laughs> it is very sexy. I mean, I I get that. It is very strange tonally. Not, do, not only does it shift tonally between like is this for adults or is this for children but it also shifts between like genre tones too like is this Mm. comedy is it horror is it romance uh but i kind of like it yeah (laughs) i think it's part of its charm and i think it almost is why 
the movie is so enduring and rewatchable mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I think it feels like fresh almost every time because it's like so zany. Almost. Yeah. I feel like it would maybe do better critically if it came out today, actually, because I think mm-hmm. like one thing I didn't really love about Shape of Water and some mm-hmm. of Guillermo del Toro's movies is how they kind of have these super adult moments, but then are very fairy tale ish. Like in mm-hmm. Shape of Water is like this fairy tale parable about like outsiders falling in love, and then there's like a scene of Michael Shannon like humping his wife. Yeah, <laughs> that's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I feel like now we kind of like tolerate those kind of pit hairpin turns between mm-hmm. genre and tone uh, mm-hmm. a little more. But this movie definitely has accumulated, like you mentioned, like a cult following and a lot of love uh, mm-hmm. and endurance. Um, and it has a pretty star-studded cast, uh, 90s queens, Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock. Mm-hmm. Sandra Bullock, look, I know she's an Oscar winner, but she's never done it for me. And I don't think she's very good. That's my she, She's wow. good in comedy. She's good. I love her in this congeniality. And that's I thought she it. was, like, so good in this movie. Really? I thought like the her performance. I thought all the performances in this movie were one of the reasons why that it worked so well because I really believed that they cared and loved each other so much and mm-hmm. it, like they were so believable as sisters to me. Never that's having true. a sister, but <laughs> that's true. I do love their sister connection. Uh, mm-hmm. I choked up a little this rewatch when Jillian is kind of leaving the family homestead for the first time and she's talking with Sally and she's like, we're going to grow old together. We'll probably even die on the same day. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, that's the dream <laughs> that mm-hmm. you don't have to live without your sisters ever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they have really great chemistry and to kind of round out the cast, their older aunts are played by Diane Wiest and Stockard Channing who are delightful in this. Uh, mm-hmm. And add so much uh, like fun color to the movie as mm-hmm. supporting characters. Aunt Jet and Aunt Francis. Francis, great names. Yeah. And this is where I have to mention that Aunt Jet is short for Aunt Bridget, <laughs> which is uh, awesome. Yeah. When I have children, if that ever happens, I'll train them to call you that. <laughs> Ooh, I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> um, so some people said that this movie wasn't very feminist when it first came out. There was a bit of a witch backlash about how the magic in this movie is kind of all centered around love. It's like a very domestic imagining of witchcraft and the main characters have this curse on them that leads the action of the story to be about like men falling in love with them and dying. But I think that to judge this movie by rom-com standards, it's, like it's not terribly regressive and Mm -hmm. the men in the movie aren't important yeah i mean i think that um the men are very peripheral and the sister connection and just like the family connection is really like the heart of the movie Mm -hmm. and what makes it so compelling and interesting to watch i Mm -hmm. guess it's like where the um, like real emotion lies i feel like for sure um i guess this movie does is very white. <laughs> oh yeah. Which I think goes hand in hand with like the entire trend of like the late nineties, like witchy mm-hmm. new age type like trend, I guess is, was just like very white and like erased the true history of women of color and their relationship with witchcraft 
or e- like even the Salem witch trials, like yeah, the, um, just like erasing the role that women of color played in that. Um, I don't know that that I think aged was like probably the worst aging thing about it, and I guess there's a line where they sort of treat Sally as. When she tells the whole town that she's actually a witch, they say that she's, like, coming out, which I thought, I was like, oh, oh. Yes. when that happened, I was like, oh, Ooh. no, that yeah. was bad. That was a little rough, for sure. Um, we read this article, I don't want to kind of, like, call out this person by name, but it was pretty bad in <laughs> uh, the stylist, uh, dot co, dot UK British, British, <laughs> a, a British publication about why... Practical Magic is the most feminist film of all time. And a lot of it's just a huge reach. Um, but the part that Mackenzie actually highlighted says the it's talking about Maria Owens failed uh, hanging. The rope breaks and she lands on her feet where she stares defiantly out at the people who condemned her. The broken noose still around her neck. The symbol of death and discrimination becomes one of triumph. Like she's this hot, beautiful yeah. white witch. Uh, it just is just super cringy. Yeah. And that that was like the first, like the the curse is mm-hmm. drawn back to like their ancestor who was this witch that was they attempted to hang and it didn't work because mm-hmm. she spelled them to not let it work. And I don't know. I think it's pretty thoughtless, I guess, to use like noose imagery. Yeah, like about. I don't know. Oh my gosh! And the ants later give the young the kid, yeah, the kids part of the noose, which is what she's talking about here yeah. in this quote, where she's like the symbol of death and discrimination becomes one of triumph when she oh. they give the piece of the noose to the children to as like a talisman of protection. And I was like, the noose is not yeah. like it should not be used that way. <laughs> don't be wearing it as a necklace. Yeah, <laughs> not um, cute. So I think it's just like a sort of. Like, like a careless reading uh, of that <laughs> and For a careless sure. like use of it in the movie. Mm-hmm. Total agree. Um, I think one of the reasons why this movie has endured so long and has such a following um, is because it has this element of real wish fulfillment and fantasy Um what particularly spoke to me is that it's this like warm nostalgic escapism of this house on an Island, um, this small community life. Uh, Sally works as like a botanist herbalist and you know, uh, it's just the shit that I, you know, like that. I think a lot of young women our age want and seek out, um, the house is beautiful that the ants live in. It's Mm -hmm. like Nancy Meyerish in how wonderful the kitchen Mm -hmm. is. There was this great uh, article we read in Marjorie Magazine, which I think is like a home housekeeping magazine, all about the house, which I think was built for the movie. It says, uh, no writer was credited, but this article says, having been socially isolated for much of their years and with their ancestors before them, the Owens house is stuck in time and comfortably so. According to production designer Robin Standeffer, what makes this home so endearing and intriguing to viewers is that the home is meant to be a place of refuge. There is a whole world in this house and garden, she says. These women are outcasts and this place is their sanctuary. Like, mm-hmm. yes, totally feel yeah. that. That comes yes. across. Yeah, the house is so beautiful. And I think like one of it, one of the like fantasy elements that is so 
like speaks to all of us really is like financial worries are just not an issue in this movie at all not an issue um they're just like living in this beautiful house on an island on like the sea cliffs and they run like a small store and that's how they make their money i I know third generational wealth but it's like it's just like dang that would be so nice to just like live in a beautiful house and like leisurely make lotions like a matriarchal (laughs) commune too yeah (laughs) i think that's something that sometimes the people who make rom-coms don't really understand is that the demographic is interested in like the life fantasy not always the romance Mm -hmm. fantasy because the the eventual like lead romantic interest for sally in this movie Mm -hmm. is so meh to me yeah so disappointing yes (laughs) okay one his name is gary gary (laughs) just like i'm sorry to all the garys out there but like i don't know it's just like a not it's not hot it's not hot yeah it's just not hot and he's not that hot he's he's literally fine and he's a cop investigating them for murder i'm like this is not gonna work out guys uh yeah he's he's pretty lackluster he's almost like kind of an addition in the last third of the movie so it's not like Mm -hmm. we particularly even care that much at that point Mm -hmm. um i would much rather watch jillian and sally interact more with the ants Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, wait, we also have to talk about the scene where they drink tequila and yes. listen to Harry Nilsson. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's insane. They the, like it is one of the like weird tonal shifts in this movie, just like a hard right turn into like them getting drunk and listening and, and like singing and dancing together. But it is one of the most like iconic scenes and just like For sure. It works. <laughs> and it's, it's so weird. Fun. Wait, also they wake up in the middle of the night to make uh, yeah to make margaritas which midnight yeah. margaritas is uh, i if anyone could wake me up in the at midnight yeah. which would not be able to happen because i'd be like three hours into my REM cycle by then <laughs> i would really enjoy midnight margaritas <laughs> yeah it's just like so fun it's just like nice to watch women having fun together yeah it truly is um <laughs> this movie was directed by griffin dunn which surprised me he is uh he's been in a lot of tv but he was in An American Werewolf in London as the zombie friend that keeps recurring. He was in I Love Dick. He was in Succession. Um, he's the son of this famous journalist. And his sister, Dominique Dunn, um, was in Poltergeist as the older sister. And she was brutally murdered. Uh, oh, my God. As a teenager. Um, wow. He kind of talks in a few articles about how he was really inspired because he grew up with very strong women in his life. And he mentions her. Yeah. Dominic Dunn is the father. And then Dominique okay. Dunn was his sister. Yeah. It's a really sad story, but I had no idea he directed this. And I also didn't know he was related to Dominique Dunn um, for a while because I'm Dang. stupid. But yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> he also, this is like one of the only movies he ever directed, I think, because it did so poorly. Um, we read this article in Vulture. He was interviewed about it kind of at the 20 year anniversary mark. And he was <laughs> talking about how he was on a plane once and they were like, our in movie, our in flight movie is practical magic. And he said some people clapped and some people booed. <laughs> wow. Which I is like so funny. It's so funny to me that people hate like don't like this movie so much or that like they can't deal with the tonal shifts i guess because it just seems like like so many people like in every review i read they were like 
why is there a Faith Hill song in this? And I was like, because ladies like the song and it's romantic. They're kissing. Oh, oh, true, true. Maybe, I mean, let's just call him out by name. Roger Ebert. And every other, like literally every review was like, why? And I don't know. I was like, it makes sense to me. Fair. Uh, Roger Ebert said, practical magic is too scary for children and too childish for adults, which maybe, but I still like it. Um, (laughs) He said, the movie lacks confidence when it uses music to tell us how to feel, hear the music intrudes, insists, and explains, and tries to force segues between events that are not segueable. Example, early in the film, an impending kiss is accompanied by this kiss by Faith Hill, which is that song that's like, this kiss, this kiss. Which is probably in a million Sandra Bullock movies from this time, too. Exactly. I know. I was like, it fits. I was like, there's Sandra Bullock. She's about to kiss. Yeah. I was like, why not? (laughs) We don't need subtext, Roger. We just need text. (laughs) And the screenplay was worked on by uh, Robin Swigert, I think is how you say it. She sounds very familiar. Who was also credited on on Matilda and Little Women. And I think Matilda is also a movie that has weird tonal... (laughs) uh shifts yeah. too because it's like pretty scary at some points but it's also like a kids movie um so i think i, th- I think it could work oh and she wrote the uh, curious case of the benjamin button the benjamin yeah. button benjamin button <laughs> um it's this movie is adapted from alice hoffman's novel uh practical magic and i read practice i read the book it's pretty different than the movie the mm-hmm. ants don't even get names they're just oh. like the ants the whole time uh and it kind of goes into more of sally's daughters as well and them growing mm-hmm. up uh it's good i think it also i think like it's a faithful adaptation in that it is like this dreamy fairy tale fantasy and then they're like we're gonna kill a man he's gonna appear in the roses so griffin dunn didn't like miss the mark set out by the book <laughs> Oh, and we have to mention this book is becoming, I mean, the, it's becoming a HBO prequel series, which I don't know is going to work <laughs> unless they like uh, Sabrina it. I feel like it could work in a Big Little Lies way. Ooh. If, oh. it w- if it had Big Little Lies plus witches, I feel like it would be perfect, right? Oh my gosh, you are so right. Like, I think if they tried to... And I think HBO could do it since they did Big Little Lies, you know, like I, I think okay. it wouldn't work in a like if, for you example, the, uh, trying to reboot something like Charmed. I don't think it worked because Charmed is like so 90s. Like it's inherently. it's so 90s in yeah. a, way, a way that Practical Magic is also, but they rebooted it, it in the same way, like trying to do the same thing and with you like cw etc yeah. like that vibe and didn't work but i think if they did it big, big little lies vibes it would work it would so work you've changed me around on that i think that is a great idea yeah <laughs> um let's jump into our one star reviews other by people other than roger ebert um oh um imdb has this interesting little demographic breakdown of reviews and this movie is most positively liked by women under 18 oh yeah and chad and chad shout out to chad whitman thanks for uh (laughs) telling us why you love practical magic um here's the first one star review i never thought i would be dumbfounded by a sandra bullock movie i did read people were like confused by this movie (laughs) people did not get it 
and I don't understand it. I, I, it's not that hard to like I, I follow, right? I don't yeah. know. It's so weird to me. Like, like I listened to the Bechdel cast podcast. Shout out a good yeah. podcast, but they podcast. were like, they did. They were like, well, it was happening in this movie. It was so confusing. And I was like, how? It's pretty simple. <laughs> I think the one part that did trip me up a little bit was that they never like resolved the curse at the end. It was oh. like, will the cop now die? Because he's in love with her. Oh, I thought it was like all of the w- townswomen helped destroy the curse. I don't know. Oh, the curse was also destroyed. Okay. Yeah. I, g- I, I guess know. I missed that. Sorry. But that was the only part where I was like, but the whole, but I didn't bother me really. I was yeah. like, I don't really care if he does. <laughs> it's a simplistic movie. And I think like there are like plot points, plot devices laid out throughout the whole movie that are like easy to follow. Like, yeah. like Death almost, Watch yeah. people. Yeah, there's a death bug. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. Easy. Yeah. There's a, 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 a tree of phone numbers. Yes. <laughs> it's Chekhov's phone tree. Comes back <laughs> when they need it. Oh, man. Anyway, the second one-star review is the one scene which forever haunts this film for me is the dancing around the table for upwards of five minutes while everyone gets drunk. This, to me, is sloppy filmmaking when nothing better could have been put in. Filler to make the movie longer. Disagree. Hard disagree. Yeah. Essential to the plot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If this this scene was cut out and the movie was left as is, I'd be like, whoa, what's going on? Something's missing. (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) Character development. Plot development, crucial. too, because the tequila is from... I know. It's Jimmy's tequila. It's, you're right. It's crucial. It's an, a really important scene. It's almost like the turning point. It is the turning point of the movie, because that's when the ants... It's revealed that he is back. Yeah. And that... This person is just wrong. They weren't paying attention. The last one star review is, if there was any practical magic in this world, Nicole Kidman could conjure me back my six bucks. This is a waste of time and my evening. Remember when movies cost six bucks? Yeah. <laughs> Someone salty. Mackenzie, what's your final thoughts and rating for Practical Magic? I'm going to rate uh, this a seven and a half because it is like kind of a classic, I think. Um, I think that uh, I loved all the performances. I love the zany tone. Gonna mm-hmm. say it. it uh, I think is what the movie needs for it to be a successful movie about witches that are both witch sisters that are grieving for their own separate reasons. Mm. A beloved husband dying and grieving a life pre-abuse. We didn't even really talk about the abuse. Um, But the movie doesn't take it like that seriously. Yes. But I do Mm. think that, you know, Jilly is grieving her life pre-being abused like she's gonna be changed after that i think mm-hmm. anyway i love this movie good movie very rewatchable seven and a half what about you wait Mackenzie, did we watch this movie when you were in houston together maybe <laughs> we did yeah i think okay <laughs> that's cute. i feel like that's not the first time we've watched it together i know <laughs> it's a it's a great movie to throw on yeah uh, it's yeah. very comforting Yes, I probably agree with the Bechdel cast. If you didn't watch it as a young person, it probably will hit a little differently Mm. as some things just are like that. But I'm going to give it a six with love. Mm -hmm. It's a fun movie. It's a great Mm -hmm. Halloween movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like the soundtrack, Roger. Yeah. 
Me too. Stevie Nicks. Great. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. She made a single for this film. I know. And it's so good too. Oh, so good. It's great. Check it out. (laughs) Our next movie is Eve's Bayou from 1997. Eve Batiste is 10 years old when she discovers her father, the town doctor in their prosperous Louisiana community, having sex with a woman who is not her mother. Her older sister, Cicely, tells her that it was not what she thinks and that sometimes you can't believe what you see. Over the course of one hot summer, Eve learns about cursed love and the burden of being psychic from her aunt Maz and watches Cicely and their mother fight and grow apart. Eve keeps an eye on her father, who is lovable and charming all the while breaking their family apart with his philandering. After another fateful encounter, this time between their father and Cicely, Eve asks the town fortune teller to do the unthinkable. Dun dun dun. This is a first time movie by Casey Lemons, who is an actress that is in two of the greatest horror movies of all time, Silence of the Lambs and Candyman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also recently directed Harriet. Uh, oh. The movie about Harriet Tubman. So she's, she's still working, but her output of films does not match in any way, shape, or form. Um, like if a director, a male director in the 90s or a white mm-hmm. director in the 90s had made a, a debut movie like Eve's Bayou, they mm-hmm. would have just been set up for life. Like they would have yeah. been like the next like Spielberg or yeah. like just parlayed it into more and more movies. But mm-hmm. her output has been much, much slower. Yeah. This movie is so good. Like I can't, it, she, it's so well made, so well considered, so like just thoughtful and everything it does. I, I can't believe. Imagine making a movie and this was your first movie. Her first go. And <laughs> Holy crap! It's. I was so impressed watching it. It felt both familiar to me in a good way, where mm-hmm. I. It felt almost like the feeling I got watching Practical Magic, where it was mm-hmm. like familiar and well loved already mm-hmm. on the first watch. You know, mm-hmm. you felt yeah. connected to the characters mm-hmm. and invested and eager to to keep watching. Created by a mostly all female. Uh, creative team too. Uh, cinematography oh. by Amy Vincent. Amazing cinematography. I looked her up and this is kind of the peak of her career, even though she was a young woman working on this. She's mostly mm-hmm. been the second director on like TV shows since this, which mm-hmm. is such a disappointment. And mm-hmm. edited by Terrilyn A. Shropshire, a, a, a black uh, film editor. So like, can't think of another movie. I was thinking while watching this as well, I can't really think of that many films that have an all black cast mm-hmm. and a a black woman director, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, like it's very rare. few, very yeah. few. This movie reminded me while watching it of uh, also not to sound like totally reductive, but a little bit of To Kill a Mockingbird, not just because of the southern setting, but because the framing device is Eve as a grown woman reflecting on this pivotal moment in her childhood where she basically had like the safety of childhood destroyed um, and said about like events happening that were kind of had these huge repercussions. Mm-hmm. Um Eve is played as a 10-year-old by uh, Journey Smollett, who I think is now has a hyphen, Smollett Bell. Um, mm, she's know. amazing. She has been in many things. You've probably seen her in Birds of Prey as Black Canary. She also mm-hmm. is on Friday Night Lights for a few seasons. She was in F- The Full House, I think. The Full Full House or The Full House? I think it's 
just full house. Okay. I think. <laughs> so she is a super accomplished uh, actress and was actually a very tolerable child actress. I thought she was so good. amazing in this. Yeah. I think similar to uh, Practical Magic, at least for me, was that I really liked the performances in this movie. And I think that mm. the family dynamics were very believable and yes. made me care about them a lot. And really good child actors. And the aunt, too, was such a good performance. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. Um, yeah, I think another thing that uh, Casey Lemons does in this movie that's so impressive is she makes every unit of the family, with the exception of the son, like, <laughs> uh, really, it's a really, like, humane look at each family member. Mm-hmm. Even the father, played by Samuel mm-hmm. Jackson, who could have been, I think, drawn very one-dimensionally as this philanderer who's hurting the family, but mm-hmm. you immediately understand like why he is so well-loved by his children. He's so fun and charming. And he also has, in the movie, a moment of self-awareness and like clear-headedness about why he is a, f- a cheater. Mm-hmm. That uh, he says, you know, like, I want to feel like a hero and mm-hmm. women, some women need me to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think just, it's just like a perspective that's not always shown. So in this uh, Roger Ebert review, they did like a 20 year, um, like, Beast Bayou 20 years later uh, mm-hmm. by um, Song Young Cho. Uh, he says, regardless of which one is closer to the truth, which remains elusive to the end, it is clear to us that the moment was bound to happen in one way or another, considering what had happened to up to that point and its irreversible consequence is hurtful to both sides, while also leading to another irreversible consequence later in the story. And I think this is referencing uh, the moment between Cicely and her father, mm-hmm. um, where, I guess we could spoil it, yeah, he, there is a kiss and it is... Um, sort of ambiguous as to like if Cicely tried kissing the dad or the dad came on to Cicely. I think um, that like this quote says it's elusive to the end but that the consequences are hurtful to both sides and that I don't think either of them no matter what who, who did what felt good about it and they were both traumatized by it. Yes. Um, but I think like the ambiguity of it leads us to another main theme in the movie, which is the theme of memory, um, which is pretty explicitly talked about and introduced by the voiceover narration that is present at the very beginning of the movie and at the very end, which I'm glad that it's only sparingly used. Yeah. Um, but in general, I liked that memory was a theme um, because it acknowledged that memory can be so like warped. And I love when film tries to tackle this too, because I think it's such a good medium for to do, to tackle the like theme Mm. of memory and it does so effectively do so effectively. Um, Another movie that I think does this really well is the tale with Laura Dern that came out a couple years ago. Um, And that also deals with, uh, like childhood sexual abuse and Mm -hmm. the trauma that comes along with that um like so in eve's bayou sicily is the one that first tries to convince eve that her own memory is wrong that eve Mm -hmm. didn't see the father cheating 
Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, it's Sicily that can't remember what is real or not real. Um, and it might be because she doesn't want to, yeah. which I think is like in the tale. Uh, it's mem- memory sort of might be a way of like protecting your mind from mm-hmm. what actually happened. Mm-hmm. So maybe she doesn't want to remember what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I just love the theme of memory. Yeah. Uh, in her review for Vulture, Angelica Jade Bastian, who we love her, her work, um, she writes about how the film treats the memories, both the, the, the memories that are kind of in dispute and whenever there's like a psychic projection by Eve or her aunt, mm-hmm. the film becomes black and white and grainy and very mm-hmm. fragmentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually reminded me of something that Mackenzie's mom said to me once, uh, oh my God. <laughs> as a, a licensed, uh, therapist, psychotherapist. psychotherapist, she said that trauma does not live in the brain, like regular memories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a 27 year old, I have 20, theoretically 27 years of memories, but I can't like access all of them because it's too much. Mm -hmm. So they become like flattened and compressed in my memory. Mm -hmm. But when something traumatic happens, it never gets filed away with the other day-to-day routine memories. It just stays present and constant. And your mom referenced, you know, having patients that could smell something that, you Mm -hmm. know, like a traumatic, like a traumatic thing happened. They could still smell the memory almost. Mm -hmm. It was so present. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that this film kind of was able to visualize that experience of having a fragmentary traumatic memory that looked mm-hmm. different than the rest of the film and how it was mm-hmm. shot and edited um, to really make that apparent. And um, in a, in a 20 year anniversary uh, reunion, Casey Lemon said that my intention was what if you explode this moment? It's actually a very innocent relationship that they're having. He loves his daughter. She adores her father. They adore each other. And what if one night they crossed a line and they were both traumatized by it completely kind of like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the story. It was strange for people to ask for me, why do you have that angle there? Well, that's the story. Um, and it made me think about how there's kind of been this increasing conversation in the wake of me too, about pyre- power dynamics too. Um, like I read this book recently, I maybe talked about it on the podcast, uh, my dark Vanessa about Mm -hmm. this girl who has a relationship with her teacher and she's kind of like, I'm not a victim. I started it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's varying degrees of how well people kind of talk about that and address Mm -hmm. it. But this movie I think did so really well in a really humane way to all of the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and definitely an inspiration for lemonade. (laughs) Yes, for sure. I was, yeah, like, uh, you know, a Southern Gothic black family unit and Mm -hmm. infidelity being explored. Yeah. Um, Beyonce was 100% inspired by this, uh, in the making of the movie in the making Uh, of lemonade. Yeah. (laughs) Well, lemonade is a movie. I, I like this. It made me want to reading the article that, that talked about lemonade, Mm -hmm. uh, made me want to rewatch lemonade. I know. Oh my gosh. So good. Yes, this is by Simran Hands in uh, New Statesman. Used by you, a swampy melodrama that shares Lemonade's interest in the ephemeral, from voodoo to tribalism to witchcraft, Lemonade's post-Katrina imagery, Southern Gothic sentiment, and audiovisual palette of Black spiritualism are specific and specifically Black. Um, And that's another thing that is really special about this movie, is that it is this time and place in history that feels so unexplored um, Mm -hmm. by film. It's this Louisiana, affluent Louisiana town in the 1960s. 
Um, the costuming is so beautiful. Oh the gowns. They're the in gowns. a gown. Like they're just like walking down the street. They have a gown for it. It's insane. Oh my gosh. The actress who plays Aunt Mazelle, Debbie Morgan, was a soap star. And mm-hmm. she brings this theatrical melodrama to her scenes mm-hmm. that are really special and beautiful. Mm-hmm. She is this character also introduced who has psychic abilities and they're in probably I think my favorite scene in the whole movie she is explaining to Eve how mm-hmm. her various husbands have died mm-hmm. and while we hear her talk and narrate to Eve she slips into a memory in the scene where her her husband and a lover mm-hmm. become present in the scene and she kind of walks out of her narration back into the memory it's so yeah. it's so brilliant like how did, uh, yeah how was it's it her so first well movie? done yeah, yeah. incredible it's just a bummer that so many of the people who worked on this movie didn't have this catapult their career. I know. <sighs> it sucks. Roger Ebert uh, thought more highly of this movie than he did Practical Magic. Mm-hmm. And in his review, he was like, if the Academy doesn't fucking nominate this movie, they're a bunch of asshole idiots. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't. <laughs> yeah. He named yeah. it the best movie of the year, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great. Um, I love that uh, Eve is a brat, too. Like, kind of oh got gosh. some bratty vibes. Yes. She's, like, so... It It's... I mean, she is so such a kid. So believable as, like, a mm-hmm. kid. But also so, like, mature in the way that she is, like, dealing with these real adult, like, horrible issues in her family. Yeah. Like, she plays, like, these adorable pranks with her brother and they're like so cute they just like the way they scream and laugh are like so kid genuine kid kid. (laughs) yeah and yeah she is at that cusp too where she is straddling both worlds Mm -hmm. she like wants to fuck around with snakes but also (laughs) she knows about her father's infidelity I like the scene where she starts swearing at her mom and she yeah. like, can't stop. She's like, God damn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just a really, really great performance by Journey Smollett. Smollett. Mm-hmm. Um, and a great movie. I'm so happy we watched it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, uh, there's just one one star review and it's pretty long. Do you want to read it? Sure. <laughs> um, Get in character. You're a weird, angry person. Yeah, this review, like, starts off one way and ends another. It's crazy. (laughs) Here we go. I had to watch this as part of a film class. I'm taking 10 minutes into the film, my eyes started to bleed. Halfway through the film, I wanted to shoot myself in the face. By the time I had finished watching, I was a crying, blubbering mess curled up in the corner of the classroom. I had not been so affected by a movie since My Girl. At least you get the pleasure of seeing Macaulay Culkin get stung to to death by bees in that movie. Is this person a sadist? Also, like, did they like it? I know. That's the thing. They start off saying it's bad, right? And then at the end, they're like, I was very affected by it. But they still gave it a one-star review. So it's like they don't like being affected by movies. Why are they in this film class? I know. That's the point. To be affected by movies is the point of movies. I don't know. (laughs) That's so crazy. I wish I that would be a great movie to talk about in a film class. Yes. Oh, my God. Wow. Imagine talking about this with Shakti. Our film professor, I know. I I was saying that I could see this being part of a like a really great class curriculum on like black mm-hmm. life in the sixties or mm-hmm. uh like memory and oh my it's, gosh. it feels like it's based I, on a book. 
because it's so rich. You know, I'm like, I want yes. to read the book that could be based on Eve's Bayou. I, I want to like develop the course cur- curriculum that is about like memory and film. Oh yeah. That. It's like lemonade and this. If and- it's not already done, I'm doing it. Do it. Um, <laughs> With my bachelor's, <laughs> my liberal arts degree. Girl, you can do it. Um, I'm going to give this movie, uh, a nine. I thought it was perfect. I think the one thing that didn't age well to me was the score, which I found a little over the top sometime. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. Like it does have that very like nineties guitar riff that instantly I was like, yeah, it's the nineties. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I think aside from that, I didn't have, like, like I said, I was glad that the voiceover was used sparingly. I think they could have used maybe the setting a little more, Mm. like the The bayou. There were only some beautiful shots of the bayou, and I wanted that to be used, like, a little more, I guess. Um, And the same with the house. Like, I feel like the house was so beautiful. It had the potential to have the same level of, like... House envy. Um house envy as practical magic Mm -hmm. but it wasn't i feel like used to its full potential almost um but those are just like quibbles yeah it it was really a great movie um and i'm already on nine two um great movie i love loved it loved it can't wait to to rewatch. yeah for sure um Yeah, so thank you for listening. It would really help us out if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ChickFlixPod and email us at ChickFlixPodcast at gmail.com. Our next episode is going to be crazy. It will air on (laughs) June 1st, and we're going to be talking about the Japanese film House and Jaws. There is a connection. Many connections we've discovered. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Chick Flicks is researched and written by Bridget Hovell and edited by Mackenzie Chapman. Many thanks to Tim Creek Carlson for our music. Thanks for listening to Chick Flicks. Bye.